Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Well, tonight we have a great show, and we actually recorded this show in Annapolis, Maryland at a wonderful event. But right now we're sitting here in an airport just near Larry's brand new airplane, and he can tell us about that. And it was an incredible weekend. We learned a lot about responsible information management, and we also learned a lot about data protection. And we are sitting here with Dr. Larry Poneman and Susan Jason, who are wonderful partners with the Poneman Institute. Let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Dr. Larry Poneman is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. Based upon his vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics, he consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs. Dr. Poneman sits as an advisor to so many different governmental agencies and other entities that I'm not even going to go through it. You can find it on our website at, at KUCI.org org slash privacy piracy but let me tell you he is a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business ethics topics for cnn fox news cbs cnbc msnbc and many more he's also been quoted many times in the wall street journal the new york times washington post u.s news and world report computer world cio magazine and much more and his research studies are well respected and are often the subject of uh, many published articles those particular studies that he's done have had a profound impact on the manner in which corporations are changing their approach to important privacy issues. We're going to be talking about some of those research studies that they've done, but before I go on, I have to introduce Susan Jason. Susan is a wonderful lady, and she is the executive director and co-founder of the Poneman Institute. In this role, Susan is responsible for managing the Institute's operations, including research on privacy and information management issues. She's also involved in the writing and the research. Susan's background includes marketing investor relations and corporate communications for such leading organizations as KPMG, Pete Marwick, Arthur Anderson, and the Financial Relations Board. We are so excited to be with you again. Thank you. This is the, I think, third or fourth time we've had you on, but every time it's wonderful for both of you to be on, and I always learn so much from you both. Oh, thank you so much, Mari. It is such a delight to be here with you and Lloyd. Yep. And bottom line, we're going to do this every year for the next 50. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And every year we do it something different. Let's say last year we did it on your deck right by the boat, right, right? in Traverse City. Yeah, when you saved my 
bacon by when we were stranded in the middle of Porch Lake. <laughs> yes, you took but us out for a boat story. ride. We almost didn't get back for our airplane ride. <laughs> if it wasn't for Lloyd, we would still be like we'd be skeletons floating in the middle of the lake. Yes, he drags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like Tarzan bringing us back. That, and was, that was quite a memory. Yeah, and we even have a picture of, of that on the website. And we also have a picture of the website of when you guys were in a teepee with us. The teepee was very good. We did that interview in the teepee. Do yeah. you remember that? I remember the teepee. That was in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's right. That's where we had Rim Renaissance number five. Yes. So next, this is going to be a hard one to beat. So this year it's in a plane, Yes. right? Yes. Last year was a boat, yes. a teepee. Yes. We're kind of moving into like for higher levels of science. So right. next year, it's we'll a rocket. We'll have something, cre- <laughs> yeah, something very creative. So let's get started. I have it in front of me wonderful studies that you've done here in the year 2008. About how many studies do you do a year? You know, I think I've lost count. Um, <laughs> we, we're, we're averaging somewhere between three and five studies a month. So I think last year we uh, exceeded our all-time record record from prior years. I think we're at, at like tw- somewhere close to 50 studies. Wow. Yeah. So we were talking before we turned on the recorder about, tell us exactly what each of you do. Okay, well, would you like me to start? Sure. Okay, so, so I'm not really sure what I do. <laughs> I, I wake up in the morning, normally pretty early, and for whatever reason the whole day is consumed with lots of things. <laughs> And so when I go to bed, I'm really tired. And so, now you're a, a pilot Oh, of a plane. that even makes me more tired. <laughs> but, but what happens is we, we, we invent research projects. We have ideas, and we're creative, and we come up with all sorts of interesting topics that relate to one of three things, either privacy, data protection, or something about information security policy. And so we, we create surveys. We design the uh, execution of studies. Either we do it in-house or we outsource the research. And then we analyze the results when those results are completed, and we prepare white papers. We work for companies that will engage us to do independent research. Sometimes we do internal studies. Sometimes companies are trying to figure out a problem, and the only way to know how to fix the problem is to talk to their customers. So we do a fair amount of that, that kind of research. And we also do big-picture trend issues, things that could have uh, an impact on the public from a privacy and data protection point of view. And I think those are the most important studies that we do. Right. And Susan, why don't you tell us more about what you do? I know you are always busy when I call, too. Exactly. Well, just keeping up with Larry is a (laughs) full-time job. (laughs) But uh, we, we just really love the research business because... The area that we are researching is changing. It impacts individuals, impacts organizations. So we feel that when we when we research a particular topic, we feel like we're advancing the thought leadership for companies, and we're providing valuable information to the to the consumer and to government. Right, and the world. I mean, we were talking just today about how this is information is global now, and every we have a global economy. We've got the internet, so. You're really impacting the world. That's pretty heavy stuff. Pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, it's scary stuff. Imagine if you make a mistake in research and people yes. start to say, oh, that makes sense. Let's, like, do what Larry Poneman suggested. <laughs> oh, my God. But but it is, it's really important. Um, mm-hmm. the, the topics are, are interesting and hopefully important. And you know you've achieved success when... You know, your friends, the people you admire, like you, start to cite our work, Um, the FTC, governmental regulators, both in the United States and abroad. It was kind of nice. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Beijing, Mm. and I was presenting um, the results of one of our studies to the Bank of China. Hmm. And they were actually citing literally every like almost every Which study, study we completed Which study oh was that? like 10 or 20 different studies oh, they yeah. had all the details and yeah. i said wow you're actually reading this <laughs> do you have a life <laughs> they're very nice that's to a, me though that's amazing yeah that thank they you are really uh, being impacted by things that you're saying and, yeah. and learning and and sharing yeah so, absolutely and i quote you all the time i, I love do. being quoted by you yeah I do. Yeah, I do. You, your name came up in a meeting at the FTC as well. I was going to say in Beijing. One, <laughs> in, no, one of the one of the lumin, luminaries for identity, in the identity theft area. You are it. Oh, you know, well. so obviously you know that. But well, it's always you. great to hear great things about your friends. Well, you know what? Talking about identity theft, you have a, a, a very recent study that was done back in April yeah. with ID experts, and one of the issues, obviously, that we know is identity theft is 
a huge issue. It's a big. serious issue for us. But one of the big questions is how well are organizations responding to the worries that consumers have about personal information that's been lost or stolen? How are they doing? Well, um, the study that we did, we actually call it a report card. And really what we're trying to find out in this research is how do consumers feel about the data breach notification that they're required to receive by law right. in various states. Quite frankly, people are upset and they're very up they, they normally don't like yes. the quality of information they receive. Um, they don't believe it's clear, concise. They don't believe, in fact, the, the message is not believable to people. Right. So they basically say, oh, they, they're really up to something a lot worse than this. And right. They normally yeah. suspect something sinister, and they don't really like what the letter says. And you wouldn't, you, you know, it is a negative communication, so you're not going to love right. receiving it. But right. it's clear from this research that the companies that are issuing the letter are really going out of their way to have trust diminishment. In other words, it's not helping their brand whatsoever. So this study really suggests that there needs to be a call to action, that companies need to do a better job. What do you think, Susan? I agree that um, currently consumers believe that organizations are basically not responsive enough. They feel that they should receive notification within days of an event. Typically in the U.S., it takes organizations a while to actually investigate, research, and find out the cause of the breach. So that is why many companies wait, not, just, not because they are trying to mislead the consumer, but because they want to get all the facts, because they don't want to over-report a breach when it doesn't affect all the consumers. They want to be able to notify the consumers affected. But consumers don't understand that. Right. So I think organizations have to do, or, or government, somebody has to do a better job explaining the process and that you don't necessarily have to panic if your information has been lost or stolen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to lead to a breach. Right. That it's going to lead to identity theft. Or, yeah, or, yeah, or, or identity, identity theft. theft. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that sometimes law enforcement asks the company not to say anything yet so that they can have time to investigate and do their work. So that's another thing that, that consumers don't always understand. But I think that organizations must do a better job of explaining exactly what type of a breach it was, not just to use the same legal excuse me, language. You're right, you're right. Uh, but actually give them uh, both an ex Specific. a good explanation, specifics, yeah. and guidelines, and maybe, and maybe direct them to some services that could help them. Exactly. Now, you have uh, some, some of the executive summary here was interesting. You had 31% um, of the consumers that were interviewed said that they terminated their relationship. Yeah. T tell us about that. Well... You know, in a survey, it's hard to capture actual behavior. So people will say, yeah, I was so ticked off at the bank that I terminated my relationship. We've done other studies that there's an intent to churn or turnover, but in reality, it's hard for people to do that, especially if it's a, a long-term yeah, trusted organization. what if you have five, five different accounts? Right, your mortgage or your investment. But what we did find in a study specifically in the banking industry that people will maybe not churn completely, but they'll stop doing certain things that they right. consider high risk, like using an Internet site. Mm. And when you're a bank, you love Internet banking because Internet banking is the most profitable. Right. And so churn may not be zero one completely, but there may be a change in behavior that really reduces the profitability of the relationship. But you see a lot of this, not just in the banking industry, but in every industry. Yeah. So when the 31% quit their relationship, it was mostly outside of the bank because bank is so hard, would you say? Yeah, I would say the, the easy relationships are retail or it could be telecom. Mm -hmm. You just get really annoyed. And when you get annoyed and you start losing confidence in the mm -hmm. organization and it's inexpensive to, ch to churn, yeah. this becomes a major reason for change. Yeah. People just figure, why should I give them my money if they don't care about me? Exactly. Yeah. And so that coupled with the poor, poor communication, something that's not clear, not concise, and not believable, that takes a long time because mm -hmm. in their mind, you know, it took forever to find out that you lost my data. And even worse than that, when you find out first from watching television or reading the newspaper, yes. and so you mean my bank had a data breach, maybe I'm a victim, and lo and behold, a couple of days later, there's the letter. So yeah. you don't want to follow the, the public story about the event. You want the company to tell you first, if at all You possible. know, that leads to the issue of trust, and I thought it was interesting. You said 
you found that 57% of those interviewed said that they lost trust and confidence in the organization. Yeah. What does that mean to people? Well, what does it mean to the organization? It, it, from the organization's point of view, it seems like their brand is at risk. Mm. You know, if you have a strong brand, say you're, what's a strong brand? Um, Johnson & Johnson, very strong brand. It took a lot for them to get there. And if you, you almost build like institutional trust, if you have a bad event, you're probably going to withstand that event better because you're trusted. Mm -hmm. But if it happens more than once, two or three or four times, you start having a trust meltdown. Yeah. And the erosion of trust is an erosion of brand. And erosion mm -hmm. of brand is very costly to companies because that's the best asset. You can't have an asset that's more important than your brand in any right. industry. Right. So the key variable is when people start to lose confidence in an organization, not just confidence for privacy, but across the board, right. you know you have a problem. It's very costly to a company. And for individuals, the loss of trust could be costly because it forces you to establish new relationships with new organizations that you really don't know anything about. It takes mm -hmm. time to get back to where you once were. Yeah, you have to really invest in kind of overcoming that, yeah. rebuilding your reputation. Yeah, it's a big investment. Yeah. yeah. Susan, you know, the survey also said that 83% of the survey respondents said that they received one or more data breach notifications in the last two years. You know, I've re received, gosh, how many have we received? We've received a couple, and actually my premier banker at my bank had to call us because <laughs> her laptop was stolen from the backseat of her car with our information on it. So, you know, what about the 83%? Do you think that's, like, pretty much the whole country, the 83% of people have received data breaches notices? Yeah, I think that tracks with the number of data breaches that organizations are reporting. Organizations are, in most of our studies, are reporting that they had at least one breach in the past 24 months. Right. So it, that is consistent with the findings when we've asked organizations. And it's, it's amazing to think that that is a very high percentage of people. And some people say, well, you know, now you're getting so many of these breach letters, you don't even think about it. Right. But what do you think about that, Larry? Do you think that that's people are just getting jaded or what? There, there are some in the privacy community who believe that just the sheer frequency of data breach notification will cause kind of like an immunity fat. Like you, you will start to say, like the Graham-Leach-Bliley notice, yeah. ah, I don't really care about this. It's just mm -hmm. another little notice. I'm not even going to read it. Mm -hmm. But right now, the evidence suggests that people care deeply about the loss of their data. In fact, in this study, even though the percentage of identity theft is small, well, because the, the, because the way we measure it, within a period of time, fear of becoming a victim of identity theft is very high. And think about it this way: it's fear that prevents you from doing things that yes. could be really to your advantage. Yeah. So you can't just look at the harm as, "Oh, I'm an identity theft victim." When you're fearful of becoming identity theft, it's like you're fearful of getting cancer. Exactly. You might and not that, take that's advantage. That's a harm. Yeah, yeah it, that it is, is a harm. real harm. Yeah. You know, um, it would be interesting to do a longest, longitudinal study because you know, law enforcement that I work with says, you know, people. Um, these fraudsters will wait a couple of years, especially if they get a large amount of data. Yeah. They'll sell it, they'll resell it, they'll use it later, they'll hold it. I know I have had victims who've called me who, who found out that their items or their, their data was used many years later. Right. And right. A, an interesting story, it was um, actually these people from Vermont uh, recently called me, and I had them on the radio show too. They had found out that there was a data breach by their bank. Their bank had sent their information to somebody else with a similar name. The guy who received it in Michigan, you would love your yeah. home state, um, called them and said, you know what, I received your mortgage information with your social security numbers and everything on it. And they said, oh, thank you so much. And he sent that to them. Seven years later, he stole their identity and wow. got credit cards and credit lines. And, um, yeah, they found out who it was. And he ended up going to jail. But he held on to that seven for years. seven years. Yeah. He gave it back to them, but then when he was, you know, desperate and, and things were bad. he was ready bad, to do something, yeah. Yeah, lots of, yeah. So I think that that's, that's a wonderful story because the, the, the fraudsters, this is a long-term opportunity. And so when you're not aware, you're not paying attention, that's probably when they're going to wreak havoc. And that's yes. why I think it's today 
very difficult to look at a breach and and monitor and measure nine months out whether or not the person is now a yes. victim of an identity theft. Yes, and, and you look at the law enforcement studies, and they'll tell you they do wait. Yeah. I had a, another woman who called me. She found out 20 years later that wow. her identity was stolen many years before her imposter worked under her name because her imposter was not legally here. Yeah. The IRS came after her 20 years later and asked for money that was supposedly earned you know, by her that, for taxes. Yeah. So that's another thing. Not only does it sometimes get held for many, many years, but sometimes it's used, but the person doesn't find out for many years. Right, because the person that stole the identity, say it was a, an illegal uh, immigration issue. Right. They're using that identity to have a job, to pay, you know, to do what they have to do, yes. right, to get by. Well, the reality is they're not actually committing a crime immediately, but when they decide, yeah. okay, we have a lot of bills and we have a mortgage yeah. on a house, and you know, the, that's when trouble starts. Right. To, to so, emerge. so I, they'll get a job and they're paying their taxes because maybe the entity is already paying the taxes for them. Right. So there's no tax problem yet. Okay. Right. right. But then, you know, maybe they get. Uh, utilities and that does not appear in your credit report. So right. they get a lot of different, um, maybe health care in sure. that person's name, and none of that appears on a credit report. So getting credit monitoring for identity theft is not the panacea. Yeah, because there's true. so many other types of identity theft. So yeah, medical identity theft, and so I, I agree with you. I think that that's a smaller sliver than we think it is. Because yes. I think that we think the world is in our credit report. Yes. So if we look at it and we study it. We could feel good. We're protected if we don't see something that's unusual. Right, right. And that's a small sliver. Yeah, and you you won't see a tax lien until they come after you. You know, you won't even see that. Mm -hmm. And you don't see when somebody's applying. Lots of different things. Okay, so um, what do consumers think can be done to improve communications about data loss? Well, I think organizations can be better at discussing the reality, what really happened. And what steps are they taking to help the consumer, you know, the victim? Um, I think organizations can do a better job by providing some services in the event that they harm the consumer to give the consumer opportunities, information to protect their identity. Some of the services that actually people in, in, enjoy, they actually see it as beneficial, mm-hmm. include credit monitoring. Right. Um, although it's costly, admittedly, if you have a million people and it's a million times $10 a person each month, it's a lot to pay. But if you think about the loss of trust and confidence, that could be a great value. So I think organizations, probably most organizations, don't consider some form of service or some identity protection uh, but they may want to consider it because it's probably going to be helpful uh, to their brand, to their long-term reputation. Right, and I don't think they're going. You know, if they b- buy, um, you know, millions of these or thousands of these, yeah. I don't think it's going to be ten dollars a month. They can probably get a cheaper bargain by by doing it for all the consumers. These services will be much more competitive, and yes. clearly, it's going to be. I mean, it, it's not a large cost for a billion, multi-billion-dollar company in most cases. So in, in, in thinking about it, what people want, people want to know the truth. Yes. They also want to understand how this will harm them and their family, and they want to understand what, what protections, what steps they can take to protect their identity, especially identity theft, but a whole range of fraudulent yes. activities. It could be stalking. It could be a, a bunch of other privacy-related crimes. It may not be monetary, and, and they just need to understand the consequences of this. Right. And, you know, a lot of companies, all they have to do is look to, like, the Federal Trade Commission has sample letters yeah. on their website, yeah. and the Office of Privacy Protection in California, we have sample letters on what corporations can do to, you know, write a letter that's, you know, user-friendly and yeah. that will not upset consumers. But I see some of these letters, and I, I want to die. <laughs> I mean, you've probably looked at a lot oh, of these, Larry. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. There there have been some really awful letters. Uh, I was a uh, a victim of a letter from uh, – it was actually the Veterans Administration, one oh, of the classes. Oh, you were one of those. Yeah. That's right. And so as a veteran, I received a letter. Um, and it basically didn't tell me anything about my breach and what I can do to protect myself. It was just very difficult to understand and read. And I now, think did they tell you what what types of data was no. taken? No. Oh, no. No, it was just a generic letter because I think there was a lot of variation in the mm. types of, you know, if you were uh, receiving benefits from the VA, if you had a disability, you would probably have different types of information. But clearly, 
you read a letter like that and you're not trained in this area, yes. it's panic city. I mean, you're going to look at that and say, wow, now what can I expect? But, you know, clearly it had a, a, a significant effect on their their trust score. In fact, one of the things we may talk about is the U.S. government study and where the, the VA last year lost uh, major major position positioning as one of the trusted organizations. Yeah, I was just reading that and saw that there's, there, you know, like, for example, the Postal Commission, they went up. And, oh, po and, U.S. Post and, Office is a dream boat. Yeah, for and FTCs, their rating went up. And yeah. boy, the VA administration went way down. Well, actually, no, the good news for the VA last year in 2007, yes. their results were really, really awful. It just fell off the page. It was so low. <laughs> Um, this year they actually recovered, and I think they're starting to do a better job. I think they put an organization in place to rebuild some of that confidence and credibility. So I think they're really doing a good job. But again, sometimes you have to have like a choice point experience. Yes, you have to have you have to be you know hit in the head with a hammer, yeah. and then you start recovering. And they're really doing a, gr a great job. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next two or three years to see the VA rise to a much much higher level. You know, it seems so idiotic to me that the military ID is still is the social security <laughs> number. Yeah. And I know, you know, 30 years ago it was not the social security number, but now it is. And we know that the social security number is really such a sensitive number that's the key to, you know, your credit. It's everything. Everything, yeah. everything. And, and they're still using it. So um, the VA still has a long way to go. And I think we just need Congress to say you can't use that number. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that the social security number has become our de facto national ID, yes. whether we like it or not. Right. And the question is, since it's, you know, the cat is out of the bag, I hate that expression because I love cats and I would not put a cat in a bag, but <laughs> that's another story. But <laughs> but it seems to another me study. that, yeah, that is a study, but it seems to me that we should get over the Social Security issue. I mean, we should just stop it. We should even issue ourselves a new number <laughs> yeah. and call it the Mari Frank <laughs> number because and just live with that because the social security number is completely unsafe at this yeah. point. Yeah, and, and yet it's still used. It's still used and it's still like the the the, the difference between getting a loan or not getting a loan mm -hmm. or getting health insurance or joining the Navy. It's yeah. still the number that's being used. Yeah. You know, when we on the Office of Privacy Protection we talked about okay, if you have to have that number, which all the companies want to use that number, sure. want to have it we said, okay, maybe make that the third layer down. Give an alternate number as, as a unique number for that customer. Yeah. And then if you need to authenticate, use it like the third number down, like have another password and another couple questions, and then have that as the final sure. number, you know, so that that isn't just opening the door to everything. Yeah. And we, we, I don't know, we haven't really gotten there yet. Yeah, I, th I think we can get there. I think companies need to be smarter about it, and I think the government needs to figure out an exit strategy of the social. I mean, the social security number is a number that is doomed. We should just yeah. re reinvent a new number, yeah, or a yeah. new new way of identifying people. And I think biometrics will have a lot to do. Biometrics with that. will have again. If it's, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, in terms of privacy issues, you know, people, what are what are the positives and negatives? You know, you hear stories. People are saying, "My God, if they steal my thumbprint." And that's permanent. That's my life. And I know that's true, but it's a lot harder to steal a thumbprint. It really is. So on the one hand, it does have new risks, but right. on the other hand, it's still pretty safe. I think there are ways to do it. I think we can figure out, as a society, a safe, maybe a bulletproof biometric. And I think biometrics will actually be better for privacy because I can then authenticate you without any fact about you except what's on you, not what you are mm -hmm. about, not your background, not a number, mm -hmm. like, a, like an artificial number, like a Social Security number. Right. I think that will ultimately be the best indicator. That's the good news. The bad news is if you ever use a, you know, a thumbprint or a fingerprint on your computer with a failure rate of like 95%. That's what I was going to say. The pulse, I hate false it. positives, false negatives, yeah. Oh, I'm, you know, like uh, people look at me like I'm rubbing my computer. I have a little <laughs> please fingerprint. Start. Please get in. And people are wondering, why is he rubbing his computer? What's yeah. wrong with that man? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's embarrassing. But the, but the end result is you can make these things pretty good. And I think that's what we're going to have to get to. Yeah. 
I, I like the the questions that they ask me. You know, when you have to set up a question yeah. that only you would know, like you know, who was your favorite author twenty years ago, yeah. and something you really know. What was your favorite movie? Yeah. That those I think are, are good. And how do you normally answer those so that I could take notes I'm not and telling. tell? I'm not oh, okay. telling. Okay, I was just doing some social engineering. <laughs> I know, I know you were, darling. But I've had Kevin Mitnick on my show, so I oh, know about social okay. engineering. I've read his books. Yeah. Well, let's go. You know, do you want to say anything? You know, basically about the bottom line about the consumers' report card on data breach notification. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 mostly bad news for business, um, but there's some good news because I think there's an opportunity for some organizations to do such a good job that it won't diminish their trust coefficient. In fact, I think there could be a data breach notification so good and so beneficial to the consumer that it will have no erosion whatsoever on trust. I think we can get there. Right. I, I would just like to uh, comment on one, one thing that I think organizations should be aware of, and that is what Larry and I call fear marketing. Last year, I was, I lost, I had my credit card stolen three times. Oh. So, I mean, every time it was fine, the, the credit card companies were excellent in, in, in notifying me, and, you know, I had to fill out the necessary paperwork, but I felt that they handled it very well. After that, after those uh, incidents occurred, I started getting telemarketing calls and leaving messages that said, we have important information about your co- account. Now, when you hear that, immediately you think, my God, I'm having an, I had my account stolen again. Yeah. So you quickly dial the 800 number. Mm-hmm. Now, I told, I, one of them, I, was, I don't know now if I should mention the bank. The they called you on? Yeah, or the one they, left, you know? they would leave a message on, my, on the phone, on the answer machine, mm-hmm. at home, because uh, they didn't reach me in the office. Right. So we, we, you know, they would say, we would like you to call. Because we have important information about your account. Right. So what is the first thing that comes to your mind? That, that you're a victim of fraud again. Yeah. Exactly. So I would call, and, of course, you get a foreign voice, uh, <laughs> probably some call center in India. Right, right. Say, Thank you for calling us. And I said to one, I was so fed up because this happened to me at least yeah. twice. Right. That I said, if this is a solicitation, I will never, ever do business with your bank. But this is... And, of course, it ended on, he said, oh, no, we have good news for you. We don't have bad news. I said, but you made for, until I was able to reach you on the 800 number, which happened to be busy for the first, so I couldn't get directly, I I didn't have direct access. And you were so worried. Exactly. And um, it's a gimmick that I think, you know, many organizations are tempted to use, a technique, rather, not a gimmick necessarily, right. but a marketing strategy to use in light of all the data breaches. To get breaches you to call back to right get, away. To get your response. So that's. I just want to point out that yes. I think if organizations do that, they They're should be on our trust. do not right. trust list. That's right. I think I like that. I, I think like we should have a do not do trust, not trust list. list. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great. Why not? But well, you know, you know, yeah. you know, Chris Hoofnigel recently did that study, that bank study. Yeah. He did a Freedom of Information Act request, and he was able to see which companies, which um, financial industry companies and telemarketing companies had the most complaints for identity theft. Wow. And the FTC would never put that information out themselves before, and, and Chris and I had talked about this. So he's been on our show recently to talk about that. Great. But, but that will raise the concern of people, too, when they find out that you think your trusted bank has all of these complaints about identity theft. I think we need to have some kind of a, I don't know about do not trust list, but because that could be a little bit defamatory if if people are doing that. But it really, you do kind of get that point where you don't trust them. What do you think of that, Larry? Oh, I I think it's terrific research, and I'm glad someone's doing it. Yeah. Um, But I basically think that Susan is, uh, is right I think that organizations need to be very careful to convert the fear factor that people have about identity theft into economic opportunity. I mean, we know of this industry that's emerged, and some of these players, like ID experts and others, actually strive to provide a really good service. They're not trying to exploit, but there are some that are very exploited. We could talk about LifeLock. LifeLock. Yes, yes. Do um, you are, think anyone will ever get a million dollars? No, they'll okay. never get a million dollars. And there's three class action suits against them right now, and Experian oh, no. is suing them, and there's some government <clears throat> investigations. Yes, yes. But their commercials are very good. 
their marketing is good. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, it's deceptive marketing. Yeah. I mean, but you they're know? like, they're eye-catching. Yeah. It is yeah. eye-catching. You know, when you have somebody with a full-page ad in the LA Times with their social security number, I think it's just very bad modeling. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. It, but they are. They have a marketing genius, yeah. obviously, because so many people sign up. And then, of course, then they complain because they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. But, but yeah, everybody has jumped on the bandwagon for identity theft, which kind of, you know, drives me crazy it as does. someone who has been trying to help victims for so many years. And yeah. then I see victims, they're so vulnerable anyway. And then yeah. they get locked into some organ, something that they could do for themselves for free. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of upsetting. Let me introduce you guys again. We are sitting here with Dr. Larry Poneman, who is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, which is a research think tank dedicated to advancing privacy and data protection practices. And along with him, sitting right here, is Susan Jason, who is executive director and co-founder of the Poneman Institute. And they do great work. We're friends. I love them. They're wonderful mentors for me and so let's go to the next study thank you i got another one sitting here this one was sponsored by avesca and this is the 2008 national survey on access governance now we have people driving by who may not know what we mean by access governance let's talk about that yeah it basically is a very complex issue in security it really is one of the most complicated areas of security and that is being able to know who in your organization has a legitimate right to certain data or secure places. Who has a legitimate right? And it, what, why do you have a legitimate right? You have a legitimate right because it's part of your job. You just, and you cannot do your job without having access, say, to all of this private information about people, about households, or even intellectual property. Now, Larry, I want to stop you for just a second because people who might be driving by might have small companies. Sure. And they might be, for example, a CPA office. Yeah. Or they might be a mortgage company. Or they might be a real estate broker. And those people have sensitive information that they should be careful about who has access. It's not even an organizational size issue. It's really a could be a small mom and pop company yes. with a couple of employees, but the key variable is information. Some information is sacred. Yes. If in the wrong hands, can totally destroy your organization. Take a even a local CPA. We do a local CPA firm. You're probably doing local taxes for for people in the community that you live in and. What's sacred to a person, the amount of money that they earn or they don't earn. And their social security number. And their social security number. So here you'll have a tax return and it's on your computer screen and you go out for lunch and someone goes in your office just to, you know, to do something. Maybe to clean the office. To clean the office. And lo and behold, there it is. It's your neighbor's salary. And you say, and, oh, and, and how about other investments? Oh, investments. Everything. So it, it could be anything. And so the key variable to good security, one of, the, one of the ways to achieve good security is to managing the access rights that people have to information, sensitive information. It's very difficult to do it in small or large size companies. Mm-hmm. And we call that process provisioning. And so what we studied in the Avexca study is are there ways to achieving better governance around the access management issue? Can we ensure that oh, people good. who can we ensure that people who have access to information have a legitimate right to use and see that information? So you, this was an interesting study. Tell about who you, who you uh, surveyed. In this study, we surveyed people in the information security and IT fields. These were people who basically have a good understanding of information security, hopefully, because they're in that field. Right, right. And they basically are responsible for the provisioning and access management issue. Okay, so um, some of the great questions you asked, you wanted to find out how do organizations determine who should have access to information resources and what is the appropriate level of access? That's okay. We're, it, this is real life stuff. Oh, We're sitting here okay. in an in a airport, so that's okay. This is like the Wings Airport, though. This I have is to tell anybody airport. listening, you know. Larry's gorgeous new plane is sitting outside. My Mooney Acclaim. The Mooney Acclaim, which Mooney you can see on the website. Mooney is the finest manufacturer of single-engine aircraft. Kerrville, Texas. They're located in Kerrville, Texas, <laughs> the nicest people in the world. This is a commercial for Mooney. 
but I love this them. This is a nonprofit radio show. This is a, we're not selling anything. I just no. want you to know how much we love like the a, plane. A, he's a little, like a little boy in a candy new, store. Yeah, no, with his new bicycle. Bowling. This is an airplane. This is better than a bicycle. Yes, yes. Okay, I love it. Okay, so that's okay. We got real life... You know, it isn't. But but it's okay the, but, in, but, in, but in doing that commercial, I completely forgot your question. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Okay, so here here's what you were trying to find out in this survey. You know, um, well, you know, this first of all, this this is an important study because you have temporary employees, you have it outsourced employees. Yep. Which I hate. If they're out of this country, it drives me nuts. You've got contractors. You've yep. got partners. Yeah. And. You know, so the question is, how do organizations determine who should have access to information resources? And what is the appropriate level of access? How do they do that? Yeah, it, that, that's the problem. And we found that organizations don't have a clear path to solving this problem. What happens in a lot of organizations, you have disparate systems. Some of the systems were legacy systems from the turn of the century. Some are brand-new database systems. Some are network-based. Some are enterprise and, and, and maybe even on a foundation of, of mainframe computers. So the idea is that you have to develop an overarching plan that if a person like a temporary employee has access to multiple applications and multiple systems, you have to have a way of knowing that. You just can't assume willy-nilly that you have a policy. You tell the person the policy, and they're going to honor it. Right. You have to have a plan, and you have to monitor it. Because if you just say you, it's important, and you don't actually prove that it's important through monitoring, you're not going to achieve any kind of compliance goal. Remember the Ford Motor Credit incident where um, the the person who was had access to, to get credit yeah, he had the he had the code remember to get into Experian, Equifax, and yeah. TransUnion, and when he left, they never changed the passcode. Yeah, and then he got in there and he sold it. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah. So that's a perfect example of having access and not having any access controls. See, that's that's a great story. There is there are countless stories of where access management or the lack of access mm-hmm. management led to huge huge issues for companies. Society General is a good example of mm-hmm. one. A manager, a trusted manager, a lot of years of experience, was issued all sorts of rights to see and use data, was promoted to the next level. No one revoked his access rights. So by the time he decided to commit fraud, he had access to just about anything because yes. he just stayed long enough in the company. So again, it's the management of access rights is about provisioning, knowing when to give, and also when to um, revoke the, the privilege. Even ChoicePoint. Think about ChoicePoint. That yeah. was a huge access management issue that they were, people would sign up for ChoicePoint to be one of their uh, business partners, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, these fraudsters were downloading information right at, uh, you know, what was it? They were getting fact no, not downloading. They were having things faxed to them. Yeah at uh, these copy stores. They got the so-called legitimate access rights even though they were fraudsters. Right, so there was no, they didn't even establish access rights. Yeah, so they were legitimate in terms of the, from the system's point of view, yes. from all their security controls, they had great security. Right. They were fine because they met all of the litmus tests, but they were smart enough to figure out how to get these legitimate access credentials. So the problem with access governance is you need to have not only a plan, but you also have to have a whole set of technologies in order to navigate this issue, especially if you're a large company. You have to have technology that can identify when there's a bad fit between role or function and the rights that you have to see data. For example, if you're but a But it could human be human error, too, because that's really what it was with choice. Oh, Point, absolutely. Because they never really went out to see and verify, are these people who they really say they are? Yeah, now so, they do that. So you have, say, a person in <clears throat> a call center environment. Yeah person is a low-level employee, clearly they're going to need to see and probably use data about customers if it's a call center mm-hmm. to customers. Why would they ever need to see employee data? Right. So now you look at their access rights, and lo and behold, there's a little E for employee records, and clearly it's a mistake, but that person might have access to payroll records. Yes. So it would suggest maybe there's some fraud that's going on. So access has to be monitored. It's not something that you can assume works all the time. But monitoring it manually is really, really hard. Yes. That's why you need technology to do this. Right. 
But even small companies, they can monitor things like that, having yeah, who has access. Y- y- smaller companies have a strategic advantage. They have bosses mm-hmm. who probably own part of the company or own right, the company. Right. And so they're incentivized to make sure that this doesn't go wrong. Normally, Well, it's I mean, like, like you and me. I mean, yeah, you have you several me. employees, but we're, we're, small, we're enough. small enough that we can kind of look at what's going yeah. on and be careful with it. Yeah, I mean, even small companies sometimes get complacent on the basis that, well, it hasn't happened to me yet. Right. But still, it's a lot easier to monitor. When you're a large company and you have people all over the globe who yes. work for you, it's really hard to do this. That's why technology is so important. Mm-hmm. Avexa and these organizations are in this space, but there isn't one organization that solves a problem from soup to nuts. Right. You know, there are little parts of this problem that get managed better with these technology tools, but there's not one overarching solution. I mean, there are other great companies that we've worked with, like SailPoints, another mm-hmm. company that has a great technology. Oracle mm-hmm. has good technology mm-hmm. in this space, but there's not one overarching solution that solves this problem. So, Susan, what are, what are the most frequently used approaches to assigning access rights? Well, I think that in many, what we found was in many organizations, it's based on seniority. Uh, it is an ad hoc approach. Someone says, well, I'm working on a project, right. and uh, I need to access customer names for this project. Right. So they're given access. but then Maybe to more than just the names. They get right. the social security number, the address, the birth date. <laughs> So things like that happen, right? And I think because roles are not clearly the roles are not, as Larry said, um, it's not defined as to what information, what data is really necessary for to um, to perform that particular role or responsibility. Mm-hmm. Then it's not monitored to make sure that if the job changes, the person leaves, then the access rights are changed. You know, you this study I thought was um, pretty scary because what. Some of the um, the IT professionals were telling you, I think, was, was really quite upsetting. You had a question here um, about access rights. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions, well, you had several of these questions here. It says, um, one of them says, the current process of assigning access rights creates serious compliance and business risks. That's one of the things that you learned. Right. And that's because what we had here... Um, what they were answering here about senior management does not view access governance <laughs> as strategic. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, it, it's one of these weird things about security. Security gets beaten to the ground with a large two-by-four mm-hmm. when, it, when it basically reduces convenience. And we, what we see is a lot of organizations talk a good game about security, but if it slows anything down, like it prevents someone in management from not accessing something to do their job, it basically gets ignored. And I think access management, as it's currently implemented, is uh, something that could slow down or prevent an organization from achieving a legitimate business goal. So that's why, that, now that's my gut feel, but that's why people responded this way, because they, they're fr- frustrated that their senior management, CIO, CEO, C-level executives, really don't care about this problem, at least not enough to, to, to fix some of the major right. defects. Convenience over security. Convenience over security. Okay. Another thing you said, 59% of those people who responded said that there is a risk that employees have too much access. Yeah. They notice themselves. Yeah, because they see it. You know, they know that, <laughs> you know, Sally or Jim left the company a month ago, and they, they're still on the system, and they can still access their records. <laughs> I mean, that's probably one extreme example, but there are numerous examples that I, I mean, just right off the top of my head, things that I've seen in the last couple of days that suggest that people have, these people have had just way too much access to information. Mm. Yeah. Then 52% of those who answered said access rights are not well managed. Yeah. So not they see fact. it themselves right there. Yeah, these people are in the trenches. If they see it, it's, it's happening. It's really bad. And then you had another question about, you know, it, it seemed that it was important to collaborate over the vi- yeah, various that's, business that's good. systems. Tell that's us good. about that. Well, one of the things that we've learned in this study, that in order to achieve effective access governance, you need to have the access governance issues managed across the enterprise. 
So you had to avoid the silo mentality that it's going to all be managed in corporate IT or the compliance department, and then they'll solve the problem. And the reason is the best people in the process for knowing what is legitimate or not legitimate are the people in the business units, the supervisors and the managers that are actually requesting the access right for the employee. If they're not involved in this process, then the process is flawed, and you're really not going to achieve success. So collaboration is critical. However, most of security, uh, in, in my experience, is really siloed. It's not something that does permeate the organization. Yeah, because 83% said that it was important, but but you found that 57% said it's not even achieved. It's not even achieved. And Susan, what do you think about that finding? What's your reaction? <laughs> <laughs> She's laughing, and I'm not sure what I said that was so funny. <laughs> She's, she wasn't listening because she got tired. <laughs> she was thinking about the plane flight. I, I was thinking about- she was thinking, oh, my <laughs> God, I have to fly with this Poneman guy. <laughs> She's already worried. The yeah. novice pilot. Mooney, 333 Lima Pop. Flight level 250. You know, in this study, I thought it was also interesting that you found that intellectual property is considered most at risk more than financial information. Yeah. yeah. I think we in the privacy community think, you know, the end all, the. The, the crown jewel of data is data about people and families, which it is. It's yeah, very important. Yeah, yeah. But in an organization, IP, generally speaking, is very important. Right, their trade secrets. Yeah. 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 You don't want to have uh, espionage, you know? Yeah, you Business don't want espionage. You certainly don't want the bad guys having access to all of this. Or your competitors. Or your comp- they're bad guys Yeah, they, they can be bad guys, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so what did you think was the overall that you learned about this in terms of like for example like you know our the budget it's what are the critical factors to achieving access government uh, do they have enough money to do that yeah so what we what we found is that um, budget is important and support from the top these are probably not going to wowing your audience because they're so obvious but <laughs> the reality is that it's about getting organizational support and figuring out a way to cut out silos. Silo thinking is deadly mm-hmm. when it comes to access governance. And admittedly, you can't do this as a manual uh, internal control or Sarbanes-Oxley-like project. It's yeah. not that. It has. Yeah. You have to use enabling technology. Yeah. But smaller companies that don't have the money to purchase it, you know, I've, I've been to these data protection summits, and they don't have the money to do this. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, that's so true. so they have to at least have some kind of a checklist or something about what they need to do offline and what they need to do online. You know, people think about online, but a lot of this st- stuff really happens offline. That's right. It's process. It's people, process, and technology. And a lot of it is process. But in a smaller com- smaller size company, you might be able to manage the risk just by being vigilant. You know, we did a, a program at the Data Protection Summit called The Human Factor in Security Breaches. Oh, great. And it was interesting because we had a very good cross-section on my panel. And if you have all the greatest technology, if you have the humans that aren't trained, it doesn't matter what, uh, you know, whether it's social engineering that can get you to divulge things that you sure. shouldn't divulge. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, so what do you think about that, Susan? I think that people have there has to be a, uh, an awareness of, of just what it means to handle personal information. Yes, I think that in uh, many offices there's just this lack of connection between the documents and the data that you have access to and the kind of protection that it, it, it needs. And I think if people are aware of the consequences of lost data, to the organization and to the individuals, that may help. But as, as Larry and, and you have commented, you can have the best lockdown security if people are negligent or malicious. Right. It, it makes the data very vulnerable. Or like you said, if they're unaware, they, mm-hmm. they really need to be trained. They, you know, it's a whole different mindset of thinking of a checklist of what do I need to do offline, what do I need to do online. You know, simple things like shredding. Okay, everybody knows about shredding, but there's a lot of people who still don't shred, you know, or or they leave things out, you know. Like you say, they run to the bathroom and they leave things out and other people can have access to it or they're tired at the end of the day. They don't lock up the cabinets and who can have access. We know a lot of times 
um, it might just be a cleaning service, and they'll yeah. do it on purpose. They go in and work in a bank, or they go in and work in a cleaning service just to be able to have that access. Paper files are very vulnerable. In the U.K., we just did a, completed a study on data breach management. In the U.K., that's the number two reason for breaches. They, huh. they, the IT people believe. In the U.S., it's a little bit lower. It's like four or five. Hmm. But just making sure that people destroy paper that has sensitive information that's no longer being used or lock it up, keep it from prying eyes, can be a, a huge uh, a huge security issue. Having that kind of information management consciousness, that privacy consciousness, which we don't have. Wow, this time has gone fast. Lloyd is telling us we only have two minutes. Well, I wanted to ask you just quickly, because I had some more of these wonderful surveys around here. Um, let's see, the data breach, the access governance... You did another one about P2P, P2P, oh. uh, P2P file sharing. That's yeah. another show. That's another that, show, that absolutely. Could, uh, but it's definitely another show. Let me give you the high point, though. Okay. If you have to worry about one thing, you could worry about a lot of things, but one thing in the security area, you should be worrying about peer-to-peer file sharing yeah. networks. What we find, and there's a company called Tiversa sponsored this research, bottom line is that there is a ton <laughs> a huge amount of information, personal information, intellectual property, anything you could possibly think of that's floating around in Web 2.0. Yes. And how does it happen? Usually it's through negligence. It's usually someone has a peer-to-peer file-sharing tool on their laptop computer, and that laptop computer contains sensitive information about you, both personally or in a business. Yes. And it has the ability to leak out right through that network and into the hands of all sorts of weird and crazy and funky people, and some of those people are criminals, and they now are aware of that, and they're using this information today. About four years ago, three or four years ago, I I testified on a peer-to-peer file-sharing congressional hearing on identity theft, believe it or not. you are ahead of your time. Yeah, I'll send you that testimony, actually. It was interesting, the testimony of all the people, because I wasn't the techie technologically brilliant about it, but I knew that there had been a lot of things that had come to, across my desk that were happened from peer-to-peer file sharing. And people, you think about the students. How many students share files? Yeah. So, yeah, and we're going to have be, to talk more about it, this. It, it, it could be someone like me and someone, my 21-year-old son decides to download Napster. Yes. Um, it's, it happens, as, as innocent as that. Yes. So, but this is a big problem, and I think Lloyd is giving us the. You're at a time. Saying his time, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susan, Jason, and thank Larry Pineman. Always, always, we love you. Always, we love you. So, and thank so we'll you. have you on again. I can't put, can't wait to any put time, the more pictures. Any time, any place, anyhow. Okay, you're coming to California. I'm definitely going to be I in California. Bring you actually into the studio. As long as that I get to fun. fly my plane to John Wayne International Airport. Yeah, exactly. It's not an international <laughs> airport, well, but John Wayne. I, but John. <laughs> Wayne makes it international. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Please look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And thank you, Lloyd. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm the host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday night from 5 to 6 p.m., but I'm also so pleased to be able to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are so thrilled to be speaking with investigator Jeff Brown with the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Sex Crime Unit. He has been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 21 years and he's worked in the sex crimes unit the last eight years. He also happens to be an instructor teaching other officers how to respond 
to and protect and resolve sex crimes. So thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. You're welcome, Mary. What exactly does the Sex Crime Unit do, and what types of cases do you have in Orange County? The Sheriff's Department Sex Crimes Unit is really two combined units. We have a sex crimes and a domestic violence unit. We actually call ourselves a family protection unit. Within the unit, we have two investigators dedicated to keeping track of all the registered sex offenders in the sheriff's jurisdiction. And we have a single investigator that handles elder abuse cases such as physical abuse or sexual abuse. We currently have five investigators that handle domestic violence cases. And they handle everything from simple non-injury assault to like your felony assaults with weapons or like almost near murder type cases and everything in between that. We also have five investigators that handle all adult and child sex crimes. Everything from simple indecent exposure to violent force sexual assault or child molest. In addition to the sworn staff, we have two full-time reserve investigators that take overflow cases from both sex and domestic violence, as well as our professional support staff and clerical. Well, tell me, we're going to talk with you again, but for today's segment, we want to know what do you recommend that we can do to keep our young people safe from sex predators in the real world, offline? Well, the difference in real world stuff versus online stuff, as a parent myself, I would tell you to be wary of any adult that takes an unnatural interest in your children. I often joke when talking to parents to not let your coach or your teacher or your dentist take your children out to dinner, to the movies, or camping. And all of those are real examples that have led to cases of inappropriate activity with minors. I've had many cases where young girls and boys have developed inappropriate and or sexual relationships with teachers, coaches, neighbors, or other people, and these kids have all done their communicating right under their parents' noses. The adults are in a position of trust by design, and oftentimes the perpetrator will place themselves in a position that allows them constant contact with potential victims. Many times the position automatically gives them a position of trust with the parents, such as a position in a church or a coach or involved in a school or other outside activities. Well, that's pretty scary because, you know, we want to be able to trust our kids in these sites type of situations. But we're going to have you back next week to talk about online predators. So thank you so much for joining us, Jeff, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you very much. 